Do you want to maximize your success with NCUA? Join Mark Trichel as he shares with you the insider's view on passing your exam with Flying Colors. The With Flying Colors podcast is sponsored by Credit Union Exam Solutions by Mark Trichel. If you would like to work directly with the Credit Union Exam Solutions team and receive support to optimize your results with NCUA so you save time and money, visit us at marktrichel.com to find out more. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining me for this episode of With Flying Colors. I'm excited today to have Michael Danio from Quantum Governance. Michael, how are you doing today? Doing great. Eager to talk with you, Mark. That's for sure. Very good. Very good. You've got an impressive bio, and I'm going to give a little bit of that for the audience here before we jump into questions. But Michael is the Chief Executive Officer and Co-Founder of Quantum Governance. As the CEO of Quantum Governance, Michael brings more than 30 years of training and experience as a consultant, speaker, and dynamic workshop facilitator. With his colleagues and staff, Michael provides a full range of targeted training opportunities in the form of custom seminars, workshops, and retreats, as well as keynote speeches. Michael regularly works with organizations of all types to improve effectiveness of their governance and leadership. In particular, he's worked with credit unions, large and small, to advance their governance and strategic efforts, strengthen their boards, and analyze their committee efforts. More than 70% of Quantum's clients are credit unions. He's provided governance directions, strategy, and facilitation services to boards, governance committees, supervisory committees, as well as senior executives worldwide. That's an impressive first paragraph of a resume, as, as impressive as any I've seen recently, Michael. So, Well, Mark, you know what all that boils down to? It just means that I'm a big governance and strategy geek. Well, you know, it's good to be a geek about something. We've got to have our passions about something. And it's, you know, it's good for credit unions that you're out there in this space. And, you know, I became aware of you and your organization because we had a mutual client that we were on a call with. And, you know, as I said, right before we started recording, it was like, hey, I got to get Michael on my podcast. There's a lot of good things here. And I've seen, you know, governance comes up with a lot of my clients and it comes up with NCUA which is, of course, my podcast focuses on helping credit unions do well with NCUA. And first, you got to do good with your members. First, you got to do with good with your board, your supervisory committee to achieve all that. If you do that, that makes the exam easy. And that's what governance, you know, good governance can lead to. So, yeah, I'm excited to kind of do a deep dive on all things governance and have a good conversation about what it is you do to help credit unions in particular, since that's the audience here. So, yeah. So, you know, to start off, I think to prime the pump, can you kind of just explain what it is that Quantum does for credit unions and the industry at large and why why you Quantum does that? Mark, I started my uh, career uh, doing ethics work. Matter of fact, I worked with a number of organizations that had gotten into ethics problems. I was the president of an organization called the Ethics Resource Center. And the ethics work really led me to understand that a lot of the ethics difficulties that organizations find themselves in really boil down to governance issues and how either their board or their CEO, senior management team, the committees of the board, essentially the leadership of the organization might in some ways be dysfunctional. And as a result of that, ethics problems occur. So I switched my focus from the ethics work that I was doing to really doing the governance work of working with 
the senior leadership of organizations to help them do what they do better. And a lot of this entailed not only credit unions, it entailed all types of organizations, nonprofits, charitable organizations, associations, foundations, uh, primarily from the nonprofit end of the spectrum, but I've also worked with for-profit organizations as well. As a matter of fact, as I mentioned to you, Mark, I'm even at 63 here, I've gone back to school and I'm getting a certificate in corporate governance just to keep the saw sharpened as much as possible. But it's also given me the psychic certainty that some of the advice that we're giving out as quantum is still leading edge as compared to some of our large corporate for-profit colleagues. But I will tell you that I think that one of the reasons I've worked in the credit union field, and I've done so now for almost 30 years, is I believe in what credit unions do. I believe in the impact that they have on people's lives and on the communities where they operate. So I've, I've drunk that Kool-Aid, Mark. But I also believe that they do need a significant amount of support and help when it comes to governance. And this is because of the historical roots of credit unions. Credit unions were, as you know, Mark, originally designed as relatively small community-based organizations in which individuals, neighbors would help neighbors, people would help people to help provide loans and the like to help people escape from sometimes the economic conditions that they were in and that to help them deal with situations where banks would not loan them money. But what's happened, of course, as we all know in the last decade or two, is that some of these small credit unions have grown into very large, very sophisticated, multi-billion dollar institutions. And the notion of the credit union membership serving on those boards, it really is a test to find the right people, to compose the board. It's a real test and a challenge to get the right leadership for the organization. So that's why we focused on governance and strategy and leadership in credit unions, because it is it has been and continues to be a real challenge for a lot of credit unions. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, you know, I took some notes when you're chatting here. I love the sharpen the saw reference, you know, the continual learning. You make your brain grow if you keep pushing and keep learning. You know, Stephen Covey, I'm a big Stephen Covey fan, and the whole people helping people. So 30, now 35 years ago, when I first started in credit unions myself, I fell in love with credit unions. And I think the what really got to me was I was in the Midwest and I had some very small farm credit unions in my district. And going there and seeing a, you know, a credit committee that were farmers, a board that were farmers, and I knew very little. My dad grew up on a farm and he couldn't wait to get off the farm because it was such hard work. So when I went into this environment, and that's who these credit unions that I had in my district were serving, I was learning things. I was sharpening the saw. I was learning about, you know, the, <laughs> the equipment and the fact that, hey, you know, if you have a crop loan, that loan should mature at the end of the season because the crop's gone. You know, those simple kind of things that all these people knew, but they knew what the tractors were worth. They knew what the equipment was worth. They brought these skill sets to the credit union, but they were smaller back then. Now they're bigger. There's more zeros. The level of expertise that is expected the more difficult it's gotten to run businesses makes governance, you know, that much more important. And then I guess lastly, kind of piggybacking off, I'm fascinated by the transition from the ethics to the broader governance. And so it's almost as, as the symptom is the ethics issue. The cure is having good governance so that you realize that you don't, if you have good governance, you can avoid the ethics issue because you have the systems in place to prevent that. In an ideal world, yeah. I mean, you, you got good governance. Uh, you know, hopefully you're asking some of the hard questions. Sometimes bad news gets to the top. 
in a more uh, transparent, effective way. And I think what it does is it gives you the courage and the systems to be able to deal with ethics issues as opposed to sometimes ignoring them and hoping (laughs) they will go away. Hope is not a strategy in my mind. And so hoping they'll go away usually has has proven to be not an effective way of dealing with some of the issues that some of my clients, I'm sure some of your clients have dealt with. And so what we do, Mark, just so you know, what we actually do when we go in to work with a credit union, we will analyze them pretty comprehensively with a series of not only, I think, state-of-the-art surveys, but also interviews. We do a document review on all of their governance documents. We'll even do observations of their board meetings and the like, and we'll get and gather a lot of information about how they're operating from a governance and leadership standpoint, and then try to synthesize all that together in a report, in a report that we can also compare their results to the results of hundreds of other clients that we've worked with. And that gives them some context as to you know how they're doing in these areas. And then, then we have a pretty frank conversation with them at a retreat in which we talk about the data. Now, the data is their own reflection on how they're doing in a number of different areas. And we'll also go, do a little bit of a reality check as to whether or not we think their perspective is authentic or not. And usually it is. Uh, people are usually very open, very honest, and very truthful. Because of the detailed nature of the questions that we're asking, it's hard to kind of hide behind the questions in any way. And then we'll work with them on, okay, in light of these being the results, you know, let's say in these six different areas, three areas you're doing really well. But in these three areas here, you've admitted you've got some challenges. There's things that you'd like to improve. What are the kinds of things that you can do to improve in these areas? And we'll have some very open conversations about what those challenges are and what the various different options are for them to improve their governance. And most clients are very, very responsive to this. And it begins to be really, I would call it a transformational conversation. And then we follow up, follow up, follow up, and follow up to make sure that they go through that transformation through what we call a governance action plan, where as a result of the retreat, they develop a kind of a mini, call it strategic plan. But this strategic plan is focused on their leadership and their governance Uh, be it their board, their board committees, their relationship with their supervisory or audit committee, their relationship with their CEO and senior team, and looking at all of those facets, how can we do this better? And the governance action plan really is the kind of the blueprint for them to do that. And so that you have the retreat, you have the action plan, and is there generally a timeline? It's kind of like a continuity of operation plans. It's always in draft stage. So your governance, like you're going to and doing continuing education, you can always learn more and do more. But from the point in time to the retreat to the point in time where they, I don't want to say graduated into, maybe that is a good word, but is there an arc of time from the retreat to the sometime in the future where they're at a better place? Or is it like an ongoing something that like your training that they need to stay on top of in perpetuity? It is something they need to stay on top of in perpetuity, but I will tell you that most credit unions will make substantial improvements in just the first two years or so. Sure. So, you know, you see substantial improvement after one year. We'll often see it after 18 months or 24 months. Indeed, what we will frequently do with most of our clients these days 
is at the end of either one year or two years, depending on the client, depending on the circumstances and the like, we'll actually go in and do the same assessment again, the survey assessment, and then compare where they are now as opposed to where they were, you know, 18, 24, or 12 months earlier. And we give them a progress report. And we've also been talking with them during this time, helping them to execute and implement. But the progress report really gives them an empirical grounding in my goodness, you know, we paid attention to this. We said we would do this. And oh my goodness, it did make a difference. Oops, we said we would pay attention to this thing over here too. And oh, we didn't pay attention to it. And therefore, the numbers haven't moved at all. No surprise there. But it does hold them accountable. And it enables them to understand that when they really do pay attention to improving an area of governance, be it, you know, how can we have more effective committees? How can we have more effective board meeting agendas? How can we have a better relationship between the board and our CEO and senior management team? There are a host of different issues that often will arise. Those are the kinds of things that are often central to the assessment. And we found that almost universally that when people pay serious, thoughtful, strategic attention to these governance areas, they can improve them and sometimes improve them rather dramatically Sure, in a quick period of time, particularly when sometimes there are credit unions that get stuck. You know, well, we've always done it that we've way for 25, 30 years. Sure. And we thought that's the way it has to be done. And then I go, you know, I go in and I'll say, well, you know, there's four or five other options. My sure. team is really adept at figuring out not only kind of what they're doing, but what some of the options are for them to consider moving forward. And it's not up to us at Quantum Governance to tell them you have to do this. But what we do is we're a catalyst for their thinking as to, oh my goodness, you know, we've been pursuing this course A here, thinking that A is really the only way we can do it. But now we realize there's a B and a C and a D and an E, and maybe one of these other paths is going to be a more effective path for us particularly in light of a lot of credit unions, as you know, Mark, have grown. They are significantly different institutions with a different regulatory outlook, with a different environmental outlook, demographics, technology, regulations, all of that. There's a lot of things they'd be a change let alone the pandemic. And so we will often give them a variety of different options for how they can think about things going forward. And, you know, that's generally very appreciated. All great points. You know, and as you're saying that, I'm thinking about, so credit unions over 10 billion, now over 15, report to the Office of National Exam and Supervisions, and their examinations on steroids are based on governance. They look at governance if they're in that category at a much higher level, but that's trickled down over time into the lower levels. And NCUA is looking at establishing a large credit union program for the 10 to 15 billion, and then that's going to trickle down below that level. So the importance of governance for those big institutions at NCUA is becoming more and more important. And then as you're talking about board packages and the relationship between the CEO and the board, and I'm looking at it from the lens that I see things at, having been at NCUA for so long, you know, NCUA has an investment policy requirement and regulation. They have a liquidity requirement. They have loan requirements. They have commercial loan requirements. They have all these requirements for all these regulations that stop shorts of enterprise risk management. But essentially, to do all that right, you almost need enterprise risk management and you need good governance. So it's having those policies requirements that they create is 
while they don't mention that it's governance that's driving it, they're saying the board needs to be involved with the policy. The board needs to do this. And it raises it up to that level. And then the other thing sometimes that you'll see is if you don't have the structure of governance and maybe a credit union does everything exactly right, but the board packets don't show that there's a lot of discussion. The board policies are a little light. They made good decisions and it's set up in a way that staff has more autonomy maybe than the Federal Credit Union Act and the regulation wants or needs because, again, you need that structure. You need to have the belts and suspenders so that the board is involved, the supervisory committee is involved. And so you all see those kind of issues in where NCUA is raising some questions relative to actions that were made that, yeah, you did A through Z, but you didn't document it, or you did A through Z, but the board didn't have that in their policy. Was the board really aware of what was going to be done? And or here's the strategic plan that said you're going to do A, B, and C, and what happened in the year is you did X, Y, and Z, and it was not really ever discussed anywhere. Well, I will tell you, you bring up a couple of really good points, Mark, that make me think about some of the things that we've run into with our clients and in the credit union community writ large. And one of them is the notion of supervisory committees and audit committees. This is a very important element of what we would call the three-legged stool of credit union governance. Uh, The three legs of the stool being the board, two being the CEO and senior management, and three being Yes, the committees, but in particular, because it's regulatorily mandated, the supervisory and or audit committee. And unfortunately, what we found in a number of credit unions is there's a good deal of attention paid to, of course, the CEO and the senior management team, as is appropriate. There's also a good deal of attention paid to the board and the composition, the effectiveness of the board. And some people want to improve that, which is, I think, appropriate and laudable. But where there is not a lot of attention paid is the third leg of the stool, the supervisory and audit committee. And it is, I think, a very important committee in contemporary credit unions for a variety of reasons. One of them you just mentioned, enterprise risk management. When I think of the role of an audit and supervisory committee, I actually think of it as an enterprise risk management committee, which is focused on finances. Sure. And yet, For contemporary credit unions today, there are so many risks, there are so many challenges, there are so many potential pitfalls and hurdles out there that go beyond just the audit or the formal financial elements of the audit in the internal control environment. And so I like to think of supervisory committees as a catalyst for Still, the board is ultimately responsible for enterprise risk management as the CEO and senior team in constructive partnership with them are. But what I would tell you is I think more and more supervisory committees need to be composed with folks that really understand not only finances and audit and internal controls and the like, but that understand some of these other risks and challenges that credit unions face uh, writ large. And that is work that still really needs to be done in the vast majority of credit unions. The third leg of the stool really needs to be, I think, shored up. And it is part of the overall governance system of a credit union. So when we think of governance of credit union, we're not thinking of just the board. It's the board. It's the CEO, senior management team, all the committees of the board, and in particular, looking heavily at the supervisory and or audit committee of the board. All three of those legs of the stool have to be functioning effectively for the governance system to really be doing what it needs to be doing. 
And there are, unfortunately, a number of credit unions that are still struggling with one or more legs of that three-legged stool. And so, you know, it keeps us busy and hopping on our end. No doubt. Well, and and again, the visual of a stool, you know, a two-legged stool or a one-legged stool, you fall right off of, right? And you hit the ground. So you need all three legs to be firm and planted in the ground in order to sit on it and in order to achieve what you want or achieve your goals. So I think that's a great visual. I I think that's you've summed that up very well. And the supervisor committee is so important, as you stated. And, you know, you've reminded me of there's a book, The Wisdom of Crowds. And, you know, it's the diversity of thought and the things that they can bring to their role. They're going to look at it again through a different lens and they're going to have different different skill sets. And they're while they're responsibilities are different. They play such a key role in the safe and sound operation of credit unions. So that's a great point. Well, so Michael, the relative to credit union governance, what are some ways that you've seen it evolve, say, over the last 10 years? Well, there has been a revolution and it's a quiet revolution. I think a lot of people don't really fully comprehend what's happened in the credit union industry, at least as far as some of the governance components. So a couple of them spurred partly by the NCUA as a regulator, but also partly by, I think, the folks outside the regulatory community, such as consultants and the like, have kind of come together and created some forces that really have put a premium on the governance of credit unions. So here's what I have in mind. One, you may recall late in, I think it was in 2010, the NCUA put out a very special final rule on the fiduciary duties of federal credit unions. This is a clarification of the governance responsibilities of credit unions and credit union boards, credit union leaders. I don't think it was meant as a revolution of any sort, but I will tell you, I think it really firmly pointed credit unions towards the basic building blocks of really good fundamental governance. Very important point, I think, historically, for credit unions. In addition to that, I remember going to credit union conferences a decade or more ago, and I would ask a simple question. How many of you have a governance committee of your board at your credit union? And one or two hands would go up. As you know, Mark, a lot of large corporations, Fortune 500s and all of that, have not only nominations committee, but they have kind of governance and nominations committee. And these governance committees have a lot of authority as far as making sure that the board of this corporation is properly constituted, that they have good policies and procedures around the board, that they're dotting their I's, crossing their T's, because they're very heavily regulated by the SEC and FASB and some other regulatory bodies. And, you know, they want to make sure they got the very best people on their board, the very best procedures, et cetera. So we've got a situation here where I think corporate America, believe it or not, actually showed us a really effective way of thinking about how do we put into motion a committee that will constantly spur interest, innovation, and champion good governance at the board and indeed at the entire institutional level. And what's happened in the last decade or so is that this has caught fire in the credit union community. So now if I go to a credit union conference today, as opposed to, again, a decade or more ago, and I ask how many of you have a governance committee, the majority of the credit unions, not everyone, but the majority of the credit unions in the room will put up their hand. That is in only a decade. That is not only evolution, that is a revolution. And what are these governance committees doing? Well, 
They're doing everything from making sure we've got our roles and responsibilities down clear as board members and the like, making sure that we've got the right committee structure uh, for the board and for the credit union as a whole, making sure that we're clear on the roles and responsibilities of the supervisory and audit committee, making sure that we've got good agendas at board meetings, making sure that we've got the right officers, making sure that we've got the board composed appropriately, 101 things, even assessing people and assessing the board itself, making sure that we're doing our jobs as a board or as committees, in addition to the CEO and senior team doing their jobs. This is a major, major catalyst in the industry, combined with some of the regulatory encouragement that the NCUA gave some years ago to make sure that you've got good governance going on in your credit union. And I've seen, therefore, what I would call a sea change in the attitude of a lot of credit unions and a lot of credit union boards on making sure that their governance is operating at a very, very high level. And I think one of the major catalysts has been the development of governance and governance and nominations committees. Now, there's two different ways of looking at governance nominations committees. There's the integrated form and the non-integrated form. The integrated form is that governance and nominations committee are one committee. And sometimes this makes perfect sense for a credit union. Why? Because those people that are really looking at the governance and making sure that our governance is up to speed and the best it can be are the most adept in understanding what are the board members that we need in the future. You know, how do we want to compose ourselves for the future to have the ideal credit union board of the future? Some other credit unions, though, have said, well, that can be too much work for one committee. And so some of them have said, well, let's have a governance committee separate. We'll have a nominations committee which, as you know, is regulatorily required, and they'll look at the nominations process, but they'll have conversations with the governance committee to do that. So there's an integrated form and non-integrated form. I'm not necessarily saying that one is necessarily better than the other. To me, the ideal form is the integrated form together, but nonetheless, both have proven to be very, very effective. And in my mind, so long as the board is doing one of the most important things it can do, and that is, is making sure that it itself as one of the legs of the three-legged stool is doing its best job through the work of its governance committee and then making sure the other legs of the stool are doing their jobs through the, also through the work of the governance committee. So long as there's a governance committee looking at those things, I'm actually very happy because I think that is a major part then of the conversation that boards of credit unions and indeed the entire leadership of the credit union will have. I would say simultaneous to this, I've seen the following kind of revolution or evolution, and that is 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, it would be rare to see governance as part of the strategic plan of credit unions. Oh, that's not part of our strategic plan. You know, that's just, you know, usually the answer was that's just the board. But today, increasingly major initiatives that exist within the credit union, not only, you know, whatever it is, uh, strategic growth initiatives or core conversions or the like, but we're actually trying to upgrade the level of the folks that are sitting on our board, or we're going to an entire new committee structure and all that. Those elements of the important work and initiatives of the credit union that are governance related are finding their way into the strategic plan of the credit union itself. I think what this does is it elevates the importance of it. Sure, so look absolutely. at all these factors now. You've got the NCUA saying fiduciary duties and the governance duties of a credit union board are really important. You've got governance committees coming into a prominent role 
on a lot of credit union boards and probably billion dollar or more credit unions. It's probably the vast majority of them now have governance committees of one sort or another. And then we've got governance being a critical component of the strategic plans of a number of credit unions. Why? Because they've realized not only is talent at the staff level really, really important, of course, CEO, senior management, but talent at the board and the committee level is also really, really important for a really well-functioning credit union. So they've drunk the Kool-Aid, which I always like to see in that they realize that governance matters. Governance is really important for a high-functioning credit union. And to that extent, the industry has started to really evolve its practices to make sure that it's paying attention to its governance practice. That's fascinating. You know, you go back to the, I'm glad to hear NCUA in your mind played a big role in this, and you said it very eloquently, but, and then marrying that to it being governance being brought up in strategic planning, it, it, you establish expectations, whether it's NCUA establishing the expectations or whether it's the governance committee that's formed establishing the expectations, or if it's getting buy-in from the board to put it in the strategic plan. Every step of establishing expectations and raising those that expectation higher, people always try to achieve what is expected. That's mm-hmm. it's just human nature, right? And so by establishing these, these expectations, I can see where getting it into strategic plans because you follow up on the strategic plan. Yes, you follow up on the government's committee, but it creates that follow-up circle so it gets the attention. And when it gets the attention, you have the discussion. When you have the discussion, you have that aha moment and you make things better. Think about how simple it is. The strategic plan essentially says, these are our priorities. Right. This is what's really important to us. And if governance is not part of that, these are our priorities, this is really important to us, it becomes a secondary priority. Sure. And then people wonder why governance is a lag time phenomenon in some credit unions to the tremendous operational success and financial success, the growing their asset base, those types of things. And that's because, well, it hasn't been really prioritized along with other things. Now, I'm not suggesting, nor would my team suggest that everyone needs to become the kind of governance geek that I am, perhaps that you are. But the reality is, is that governance is part of the equation. It is one of the pieces of the puzzle for a well-functioning credit union. And therefore, you do need to pay attention to it, sometimes more, sometimes than others. But it is a very, very clear priority. And some organizations have sadly made it a very secondary or tertiary priority. And as a result of that, their board, their governance, their committee structure, all of those types of things have kind of lagged behind what sometimes are some very innovative steps that they're either their CEO or senior teams have taken. And they can, as a result of that, the entire institution kind of fall behind other credit unions out there. And we would never want that to happen, let alone the competition they have from a lot of upstart organizations out there in the financial field who are doing some very leading edge things, be they nonprofit or for-profit. Very good. All great points again. So, Michael, the you know small credit unions, big credit unions, super big credit unions, as it relates to governance, how is governance of a smaller credit union, and let's just say less than a billion different from that of a larger credit union a billion billion or more or 5 billion or more and second part to that what transitions does a board of directors have to be prepared for as they change from the small to the medium to the large category yeah well that's probably a good 10 hour seminar uh, <laughs> that one question but i'll try to summarize my thoughts on that quickly so one is kind of the framing of what the board 
would pay attention to. In the smaller credit unions, sometimes, at least I would say statistically, they're going to be paying attention to a lot more of the high-end operational issues, some of the house, sometimes even in some of the smaller credit unions, the board can be in active conversation almost on a high-end operational level with the senior leadership of the small credit unions to figure out what's, you know, how are we going to move forward? What are the kinds of things we should be doing from a nuts and bolts point of view? I'm not saying they should be micromanaging, don't get me wrong, but the conversation is not necessarily elevated to a high strategic level. But as credit unions grow, and particularly I'm talking about the asset asset size of the credit union, but even beyond just asset size, I'm talking about geographic complexity. I'm talking about regulatory complexity. I'm talking about affiliating with QSOs, those types of things. As that increases, the need for the board to be ever more strategic in its thinking becomes paramount. And this then entails looking at the composition of the board, who sits on the board, and what are the types of skills and abilities and traits do those individuals bring to the board table, to the credit union writ large. And I think it's really important that people realize that as credit unions grow in size and in complexity, that they have to really think about as their staff has evolved. To me, this is a very clear kind of analogy. As the staff has had to evolve and get more sophisticated, so does the board, so do the committees of the credit union need to evolve. And they need to sometimes even have new people sit on them, which have higher degrees of either expertise or experience or familiarity with strategic issues, with major initiatives, with kind of what some people would call kind of C-suite types of projects and uh, challenges and wrestling with them. And so I think that we need to look at who is it that is actually sitting on the credit unions board and who do we need to build the ideal board of the future? And that's where the larger, more complex credit unions begin to, is paramount to have the right people on the board, let alone what you alluded to earlier, and that is is the degree of regulatory scrutiny and the degree, the stakes. (laughs) You make a mistake in a $50 million credit union, that's one thing. You make a mistake in a $5 billion credit union. If they're, you know, let's say comparable, in the percentage of the mistake in those two credit unions, that's that could be a very, very, very big mistake. And so you've really got to have people that are attending to both the fiduciary oversight duties and have the ability to ask the right questions and be willing to ask the right questions. Half the time I've seen credit union boards where the people have the smarts, they have the experience, they have the knowledge, but for whatever reason, they don't want to ask the question. They're afraid to ask the question, They're intimidated to ask the question. When they ask that question, they get a whole bunch of pushback or whatever. Sometimes the job of a board is to ask the hard questions. Now, I'm not saying you ask the same hard question 27 times in a row, but the reality is, is sometimes these things need to be worked out as you grow and as your asset base becomes larger. And so what's happening here? Well, the board becomes more strategic in its orientation. It also becomes more sophisticated and nuanced in asking some of the right fiduciary oversight questions, but not to the degree that the fiduciary and oversight questions completely crowd out the time to have the strategic conversations. So I think one of the major changes is that the board meetings themselves 
begin to get more strategic. And instead of talking about strategy in 10% of your meeting and 90% of your meeting as a small credit union, perhaps being devoted to fiduciary oversight or high-end operational issues, it begins to shift. And you begin to have meetings that, you know, as you're at billion or above, 2 billion, 3 billion, 5 billion, might be half of your meetings or more are strategic in their orientation. And that's a big shift for the chair, for the CEO in designing those meetings, for the people participating in those meetings, both board and staff have to kind of reframe what's really important in those meetings. And it's not doing a 75 slide detailed 20 bullet points a slide PowerPoint presentation. It's not a data dump anymore. It's now having really high impact knowledge building, wisdom building conversations so that we know enough to ask the really hard questions when we need to. That's a big mental kind of framing shift. That yeah, it's a culture. It's a culture. I mean, the word that I wrote down here as you're talking, it's a shift in culture. And I think about the discussions where it's like, you know, why are some won't, they're afraid to ask the question or for whatever reason, they won't ask the question. And that goes back to the culture. And we've always done it this way. And, you know, the new board members come on and you've got the board members that have been there forever. And again, we've done it this way, but the culture, it's a paradigm shift. It's a culture shift. And then also on the question side, it's the, you know, there's a difference between seeking to understand and micromanaging, right? And we all know we've all had micromanagement type situations where we felt, yeah, you know, that's my responsibility. That's not your responsibility. Let me, you know, believe me or relieve me as one of my former bosses used to say. And yeah, seeking to understand so you can raise the bar for everybody is what it's all about. Micromanagement is not what it's all about. And sometimes you can get a little defensive. And as you're transitioning to that culture change so that you can see the light and be at a better place, you're going to go through some of those nuances. I will tell you also, one of the things that Quantum does that I think you and your listeners would really be interested in is, is every two years, we do a very kind of formal synthesis of all the data that we've gathered from credit unions and indeed even from supplementary surveys. And, you know, in the governance field, you can ask all kinds of questions that are just kind of descriptive in nature. You know, do you have a governance committee? Do you do this? Do you do that? One of the things that we've been looking for is, is are there any kind of what I would call linear relationships, correlations between certain types of data and other data? that would be indicative of how important some of the governance elements are. And I will tell you that here at the end of 2022, we're actually going to come out with our report, the state of credit union governance. And for the first time, we've seen some correlations or what we would call linear relationships between four major elements of how credit unions govern themselves. So one of them is as simple as is clarity around the board member roles and responsibilities. And that, you know, everyone would say, well, that seems like kind of basic one-on-one stuff. The most sophisticated credit unions that we deal with still ask really thoughtful, intelligent questions about what are the board members' roles and responsibilities? Why? Because they be evolving, right? They are constantly evolving in certain ways. The other thing is, is to what extent and what types of things should board members be engaged in? Time is limited. They're volunteers in almost every case, except for certain states in the country. And so in what kinds of things should the board members 
spend their time on, where should they be engaged, to what extent should they be engaged, et cetera. And then how do we hold volunteers accountable? How do we hold ourselves accountable? How do we make sure that we meet whatever promises we make to each other? I often call this the board covenant. How do we make sure that we meet the promises that we've made as far as being good leaders, being good board members, being good stewards of this tremendous trust that members have placed in us? And that leads us to the last element of these four key elements, and that is is the notion of leadership trust itself. You mentioned culture earlier, Mark. I couldn't agree more. It really does, in some ways, boil down to some significant development of a culture, a framework in which we can respect and trust each other enough to ask each other the hard questions. And that's hard. It's hard. That's why there's all these management books out there. Uh, trying to help people do it, why you do your work, why we do our work. And that is, that can be hard. But the combination of these things, board member roles and responsibilities, engagement, accountability, and trust, for the first time in our data, we've actually seen linear relationships between those factors. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if you go back into high school here, you remember the old, in mathematics, chart in which you're charting X and Y on some kind of line and the like. A linear relationship really basically means as X changes, Y also changes as well. And if X changes some more, Y will also change some more. Basic kind of correlation or linear relationship. We have seen now in our data linear relationships, correlations between the degree to which board members understand their basic roles and responsibilities, the degree to which they are appropriately engaged, the degree to which they are willing to hold each other and senior management accountable and the degree to which there has been a genuine or authentic development of leadership trust. Now, it's trust, but verify, don't get me wrong. Sure. But it's still, it starts with trust, not distrust. (laughs) Right. When you put those four factors together and you see linear relationships among them, you realize that if, as you improve one, you could potentially improve the others. And this is, I don't want to call it the $64 million question that we've been looking for for a decade or more, but It's at least the $32 million question that we've been looking for for a decade or more. This is, I think, a a significant leap ahead. And why actually investing in the clarity around governance, why putting governance as part of your strategic plan, why having a governance committee, why looking at and assessing the quality of your governance, your board as a whole, and even potentially looking at the quality from a peer-to-peer perspective of how board members are contributing at a leadership level to your governance, as well as the relationships among the three legs of the stool. As I mentioned before, these four factors here say that as you do those things and improve those things, it will improve not only that one area you're looking at, but perhaps the other areas as well because of these linear relationships among them. That is to say it's a really good investment because when you improve all of these things, you can improve the leadership, the governance, and the success of your credit union. Michael, that's fascinating. I look forward to seeing that report when it comes out. And so this has been a lot of fun, a lot of information. I think the listeners are really going to like it. If someone listening would like to reach out to you and or Quantum, what's the best way for them to reach you? Well, we're on the web, Quantum Governance, one word, quantumgovernance.net, you know, obviously www.quantumgovernance.net, or they can reach out to me and members of my team. It's our acronym is the same, and that is I'm Michael at quantumgovernance.net. 
but also our president of consulting services, Jenny Bowden, is Jenny, J-E-N-N-I-E, at quantumgovernance.net, or our director of marketing, Giselle, at quantumgovernance.net. And any one of us would love to hear from folks, hear either feedback on this particular podcast, or we're always here to answer questions. We're unique, remember, Mark, and that is is we're not a for-profit consulting practice. We're actually what's called an L3C, which is a limited liability, low-profit organization dedicated to the public good. And our dedication is to making institutions such as credit unions even more effective at all their various different leadership levels. So I would welcome conversation and questions from anyone about their governance. Fantastic, Michael. This has been great. In the show notes, I will put those emails, the website, so that people can find it there. Also in the blog, Michael, I want to thank you for your time today. Thank you, Mark. It was a pleasure. Likewise. And this is Mark Treichel signing off. I appreciate you listening to today's episode, and I hope we'll have you back again soon. This is Mark Treichel signing off with Flying Colors. Thank you for joining us on this episode of With Flying Colors. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to hear future episodes where subject matter experts of all varieties will provide tips on how to achieve success with NCUA. If you would like to learn more about how we assist credit unions, check out our services at marktreichel.com. 